0: It's Tuesday, April the 14th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast covering the social, economic, and geostrategic concerns in a world ever-changing due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. It's my great privilege to host a conversation in which three Hoover Senior Fellows, Hoover's Goodfellows, offer their unique insights into what lies ahead in these uncertain times. The Hoover Goodfellows are... John Cochran, an economist, and the Hoover Institution's Rose Marie and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow, as well as the author of the Grumpy Economist blog. John, how are you today? I'm doing great, thanks. We're also graced by the presence of Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow, and a renowned historian and author. He's also the host of Neil Ferguson's Net World, a three-part PBS series on the intersection of social media, technology, and the spread of cultural
1: movements. Neil, how are things in the wilderness primeval? Uh, they're satisfyingly, satisfyingly wild, actually, as a wilderness should be.
0: Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, and the only one of us smart enough to have taken as hair care into his own hands before barber shops disappeared, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Proud of coming west of California, General McMaster was the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. And there's still time for you
2: and our colleagues to join the Hoover Hair Club for Men. We can be the Legion of the Bald Brothers.
1: How's that? I'm going in the opposite direction, as you may have noticed.
0: (laughs) So let's start the conversation, gentlemen, and I want to throw one word out there for you to discuss, and that word would be normalcy, which we're hearing a lot of today. I was just watching the governor of California do his daily press conference, and that was the theme of the day, normalcy, the return to normalcy. Now, before COVID came along, normalcy was a word captured by Joe Biden. Normalcy being, in his use of the term, a return to politics without Donald Trump in it. That's the Biden campaign. But with COVID now in play, normalcy takes on an entirely different meaning. Normalcy is, will we be the same we were before this happened? And this leads to a lot of questions. Can we actually return to normal? If we can return to the normal, what is normal going to look like? How fast? How soon? I'd like to start this by throwing this to you, Neil. And I want to read you some words that the wise man wrote over the weekend and have you expound on it. Here's what this gentleman wrote, quote, an economy without crowds is not a new normal. For most people, the word fun is almost synonymous with crowd. The coming year will be a time of depression in the psychological as well as the economic sense. In the Bible, Christ's resurrection happens in just three days. The resurrection of the world economy will take a whole lot longer. Neil, who wrote that?
1: Guilty as charged, Your Honor. Uh, that was me reflecting on the economic consequences of the plague uh, in my Sunday Times and, and Boston Globe column, I think I was influenced partly by our learned friend, uh, Professor Cochran, whose blogging on the economics of the pandemic has really been exceptionally good, and I recommend it to all viewers. I think one of the key uh, lessons of history is that people crave normalcy after a crisis like this. Uh, if you think about the political consequences, of the great 1918-19 influenza pandemic, one of the most striking was the uh, landslide Republican victory in the 1920 presidential election. Uh, Warren Harding won by one of the biggest margins in American history on a slogan of return to normalcy. And I'm pretty sure that that's uh, in the minds of Joe Biden's campaign managers. He is going to be Mr. Normalcy. Uh, uh, this year. But I, I think it's it's very clear already that there won't be a quick return to normalcy because of the peculiarities of COVID-19 as a disease. It's uh, highly contagious. We don't quite know how contagious because there's lots of mm. asymptomatic people and there's not enough testing. And it's pretty lethal, but not quite as lethal as 1918-19, mm. certainly more lethal than uh, standard influenza with which we're familiar in our generation. So I think normalcy is going to be very hard to get back to, despite massive fiscal and monetary relief from the federal government. In reality, we won't get to normalcy until there's a vaccine that's generally available, plus some therapies, and that is a 2021, not a 2020 normalcy. Mm -hmm. John?
3: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a great desire to go back to normal. Uh, I, I don't think there'll be any competition among politicians. I'm sure Mr. Trump will uh, would like to get back to normal and will announce that around Labor Day to last until November sixth. <laughs> um, but uh, I agree with Neil. Um, uh, the, the forecast I'm seeing is that the immediate crisis will wane pretty quickly but then we live in a uh an economy in a society where most of us have still not been exposed so kind of virgin territory for a uh for a virus uh and ready to start up at any time so um we we're facing an economic catastrophe uh that has to be relieved to some extent while still having the threat of this thing bubbling back up at any time so that uh, you know, nor, normal. We're, we're exactly as Neil said. We're until everybody knows they can go to a restaurant and and a bar and not get this disease. We're not back to normal. Sure. Um, yeah, what's the your challenge? challenge for right now is what this summer is going to look like, mm-hmm. uh, which has to be the the reo this reopening of the economy with some safety, and that's this this is now on the agenda. All the news over the weekend. Uh, governors are getting together to figure out the administration is starting a new task force on it. Uh, how do we get not back to normal?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Let's, let's lower our sights a little bit. How do we get not economic catastrophe and, and muddle through the summer, uh, without, uh, everything falling to pieces? That, that's the immediate challenge. Uh, normalcy, I, I agree with Neil. Um, it, it's that, that's a year away.
0: Right. So HR, yesterday was Thomas Jefferson's birthday and fittingly enough, we're now having a very large conversation about states' rights versus the federal government. What's your sense as
2: to what the new normal is going to look like in six months, let's say? Well, I think we can help define the new normal. And that's what the Hoover Institution is all about, is ideas defining finding a free society. And Neil's comments got me to thinking that what we don't want to do is to get back to the new normal have a popular willingness to give up our individual rights. Neil had me thinking about Gordon Craig's sweeping history of the of the German people, in which he says it really was the devastation of the Thirty Years' War that had the German people culturally predisposed toward a willingness to surrender their individual rights. For for example, for the for security and the and the collective good. And and I think that that observation, that historical observation, ties into to what John Cochran has been talking to us about too, is that. B- big government had to step in but will big government step out and i think we ought to ask ourselves the question how do we set ourselves our, our sights maybe even higher <laughs> now, maybe not economically uh, because I, i'm not i'm not disagreeing with with john here mm-hmm. but but socially and politically can we use the strength that we've seen among our fellow americans especially among healthcare workers and those on the front line uh, of, of this of this fight against this virus, to inspire us to come together to reverse the polarization in in our polity and regain confidence in our democratic principles, institutions, and processes as well as in our free market economic system. I know there's going to probably be a tendency to say, okay hey well we we didn't do as well as we should have in at, at a centralized federal government level, so we need more centralized federal government when i think that might be the opposite of what we need we should really take solace in in the in the adaptations that we've seen uh, admittedly from behind a position from being behind the curve on this uh, at the local level and and the great entrepreneurial spirit of the country and and the drive behind innovation uh to, to help us get through this with a, with a virus and therapies and so forth so I would say I, I agree with John that, that we don't want to set our sights too high economically, but let's try to set our sights high uh, from, from a social and political perspective. Mm-hmm.
0: Neil, John?
3: Oh God, there's so much to say here. Um, you know, on, on the rights, so, so this has to be handled at a local level, uh, which, you know, what happens at in, in a grocery store in Palo Alto with federal help. Um, so we are seeing a reinvigoration of our, our local political systems, which is great I think we're all seeing the collapse of our bureaucracy So rebuilding a competent bureaucracy, I think is going to be a bipartisan uh, project um, but but with federal help, I, I heard one hilarious thing this morning Apparently there is a federal group the national institute of something or other where there's like a thousand doctors ready to parachute in and and help uh, do local public health plans, but they've all been stymied in red tape and, and no one's going anywhere Well, that there is going to be a Investigation of what the heck happened? Uh, and I hope it's bipartisan and and like the 9-11 Commission, you know figures out what went wrong uh, And rebuilds that bureaucracy There is the rights question is a really important one um, where we have to be in the summer uh, in my view to not have an economic collapse is a sensible economic reopening with active public health. The way you're supposed to handle this is not by saying nobody go to work. The way you're supposed to handle this is by really intensively finding those few cases that remain, putting out the fires, maybe a little local lockdowns, contact tracing and so forth. I hope Neil will tell us a little more uh, because I saw from him, he's got some great details on how the South Koreans and Taiwanese did this. But through pretty, um, you you know, tracing where you've been on your cell phone and everybody you've run into, that's uh, something Americans are are not used to. Well, it's kind of got your choice of, now, can we implement that sort of thing competently is already to be seen, but that uh, a a robust public health uh, response is really the only way to avoid an economic lockdown. If you look at what's going on in Europe... um, I, my I, I uh, to try to keep up my language as I watch an Italian tr- Twitter stream. And, and they had a you know TV news of a helicopter chasing down one guy who dared to go running on the beach, and then you know, the police tackling him and finding him. The Europeans have been told stay in your houses, something that even Americans have have, have not been told to date. Uh, I don't know how they're putting up with that, um, but uh, it's a serious question of what we're willing to put up with. Uh, on the civil liberties, on the government intrusion rights in order to be able to run a, uh, an economy. And that we'll, we'll have that uh, interesting discussion over the summer and then claw back all our civil liberties when it's done.
0: Exactly. Neil, can you build on that? Should we be thrilled that Google and Apple are working on contact tracing
1: technology or should we be concerned or should we be both? Well, let me say a, a couple of things. The, the first goes back to HR's point about big government. Mm -hmm. I think when we have uh, the equivalent of a 9-11 commission, it will reveal that big government, in fact, failed uh, with respect to the pandemic, because it's often forgotten, uh, that, and indeed it's hardly mentioned in the the media, that the Department of Health and uh, uh, Human Services has in its... Uh, enormously complex bureaucracy, uh, a specific undersecretary responsible for pandemic preparedness. There is uh, an act uh, of Congress that makes uh, very clear that this is a matter of uh, importance. There has been a bipartisan uh, commission working on this issue for the last five years, and uh, the Trump administration itself produced a report on the issue of pandemic preparedness only last year. And so while we uh, learn endlessly about the the president's decision-making uh, or lack thereof, the reality is that it was big government that, that failed, that all the legislation and all the committee work and all the reports, 36 pages, Uh, of uh, recommendations, I read them this morning uh, uh, from the administration, resulted in absolutely nothing when the crisis actually struck. And that is a terrible indictment of the capability of the U.S. federal government. Uh, Philip Zellico, my uh, fellow historian at the University of Virginia, was uh, having a really interesting discussion uh, with some of us about this. And his central theme, and he's been banging on about this for many years, in fact, he was on the 9-11 Commission, is that the effectiveness, the competence of uh, the federal government has notably declined in recent years, something I also wrote about in a book called The Great G- Degeneration. So please, please, let's not let anybody claim that this somehow proves the need for big government. On the contrary, it shows that big government has been an epic fail uh, in the face of a crisis that it told us it was ready for ad nauseam. Second point, we can learn from the successful, uh, mostly East Asian countries, Taiwan in particular, but also I think South Korea, how you deal with a new coronavirus. You have to, and this is in fact an old insight of epidemiology, you have to identify the problem early and act early. And by act, I mean not only the traditional responses to plagues like quarantine for the infected, but this is the crucial thing, widespread testing to identify who's infected as soon as possible. And then, of course, contact tracing, which we can do with technology in a way that previous generations couldn't. And that does mean requiring people, this is what happens in Taiwan and South Korea, to carry their cell phones and to have apps enabled that will identify uh, essentially their social network and alert them to whether or not somebody in that network's infected. It all sounds like something that even George Orwell would have struggled to dream up. But the reality is that if you don't have that contact tracing, there's no way you can return to normalcy or anything like it without the pandemic simply resuming where it left off when you locked down. And what really concerns me is that not only have we failed at mass testing, we're still lagging dismally behind where I thought we would be by now, but also it's only last Friday that we had an announcement from the big tech companies that they were working on this. I mean, it's incredible. We're we're now into mid-April. The thing is pretty much out of control in the United States in the sense that really many states are not seriously practicing uh, lockdowns or social distancing. And only now we're beginning to identify the things that should have been in place before this coronavirus even materialized in China uh, at the beginning of the year.
3: Can I add to that a little bit? Um, so the chan- you know, what a policymaker wants to know right now is how do you reopen safely? And, and lots of them are thinking about it. Uh, we all say testing, 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 but as I see it, the crucial issue is, even if you have the tests, what do you do with the result of those tests? <laughs> Where is the bureaucracy in place to take the data from those tests and do something useful with it? Um, it would be nice if people knew if they were sick or not and did the right thing. People tend not to do that sort of thing. Um, and and in particular, as this disease, this disease seems singularly well-evolved to exploit our weaknesses. Well, of course, that's how evolution works. It wouldn't be here if it, if it hadn't. The large number of uh, asymptomatic people who can spread the disease, I think that does mean actual tests are really needed. Uh, some other diseases, you know, you can just get people with fevers and you know who's got it and doesn't. This one, uh, people go out for five days without fevers. Well, that's what really helps it to spread. So the, f- the fact of testing of asymptomatic people, of groups of people is, is gonna be important, but then you need to know uh, what to do with those tests. And here, Neil has, has documented some of the very creative app systems that, I- I'm not quite sure why our tech companies are inventing them. They're- they've been in place in these East Asian countries for a couple months, and we're now just sort of discovering, oh, we, we need some apps. Uh, always late to the game. Uh, But I do think that is the big challenge. Is there going to be an effective public health response in the summer that lets us open the economy. And what does that look like? What can we learn from these apps? What can we learn from the uh, East Asian countries and, and the way they did things?
0: Right. H.R., we look at so much of this from a domestic standpoint. And this week, we've seen a rift develop between the president, who seems to think he can restart the economy. Governors are saying, no, we're the ones who turn the key. Western governors on the, um, the governors of Oregon, Washington, and California have teamed up. Northeastern governors have teamed up as well. So we have this rift in the U.S., um, walk us through what happens internationally, though, because let's say we get back to some semblance here in the country where we can move around and we can travel around. How do we restart commerce?
2: How do we restart travel between countries? How, who's going to decide that? Well, this, this really highlights the need for international cooperation, but, but international cooperation, that's informed by the limitations, limitations associated with you know, the behavior of authoritarian uh, countries such as 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 China and and the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party, and the recognition that that really we have to work first of all with like minded countries to cooperate and you know, share best practices and understand really how to, to really begin to open up the, the global economy, uh, but then also to cooperate together to make sure that this that this, something of this scale doesn't happen again. Uh, I think it's important for us not to place our faith. In international organizations that are oftentimes infiltrated and subverted by those who are actually operating actively uh, against the purpose of, of those organizations, as we saw with the with the the, the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I think that that really, you know, we we tend to to engage in self-flagellation quite a bit about about uh, our, our lack of cooperation with other nations, when in fact I think there is a very high degree of cooperation going on that is really in, not very visible to most Americans. This is cer- certainly help, happening in, in, in healthcare, but it's really happening at all levels of, of government a- as well. So I think we have to be careful about these, these sweeping statements that the, the, the United States is not, uh, is not contributing. In fact, in, in March, uh, President Trump signed a bill to provide $1.3 billion of, assist, of, of foreign assistance, uh, pandemic assistance. Uh, Secretary Pompeo announced just a couple of weeks ago I think 275 million dollars, something like that, assistance for at-risk countries in, uh, in developing and developing economies that are subjected to, to the pandemic. So I think the United States—I know that the United States has maintained an international perspective, based on the recognition that this virus doesn't know borders, and we have to we have to work cooperatively with with those countries that that will cooperate with us and with others. Uh, to to you know to get beyond this crisis and then of course to begin to work on measures internationally that we can put in place to to uh, to prevent the next one from happening or to at least contain it.
3: Mm-hmm. I just chime in quickly there. Travel is going to be the one of the last things to come back. So if you think about normal and normal's getting on a plane and flitting off to London for the weekend, that that's one of the. You know, let let's start little. I mean, as I looked around Palo Alto. Uh, tree trimmers, gardeners, and dog clippers, uh, three surfaces I happened to need in the last week, are shut down. Uh, that can come back first. Uh, get on a plane and going places. Neil's point about networks is very important. A crucial, one crucial piece of this virus is, is it's um, the long asymptomatic period. Another crucial piece of this is that it tends to spread through a couple of super spreading events. And, and you just need one person getting on a plane and going to a birthday party and bing, you got it going again. Uh, so uh, that's going to take cooperation. It's going to take, you know, you're going to have to get a test to get on an airplane, but don't, don't look for travel to come back. The international cooperation part. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to worry about the financial aspects of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, just last week, the IMF announced that emerging 90 emerging market countries had already come for help. Uh, They want a trillion dollars in total help, and that's what they want given the first three weeks of this business. Uh, Their uh, export markets have collapsed. Um, They don't know how to buy stuff, uh, and the virus hasn't even gotten there yet. This is just their economic difficulties due to the lack of demand. But I do think once the government says open up, that doesn't mean the economy comes roaring back. China's discovering this. Uh, they, they at least they. I, I will get some details. I hope from Neil, but they say they're opening up, and then guess what? Uh, your economy is still very much in the doldrums, as, as ours will be. So, you know, we got a trillion bucks that they, uh, emerging markets want. Italy is on the edge of going under. They can't borrow money. Um, there, there's a lot. States of local governments in the U.S. are 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 are, are in real trouble. I mean, as this goes on, uh, the amount that's going to fall to Uncle Sam. <laughs> internationally and domestically, is going to be pretty large.
1: Mm-hmm. Neil? Yeah, I think John's raised a really important issue. What the International Monetary Fund just did was to acknowledge that this is going to be a far bigger global economic shock than anything we saw after 2008. We're really looking at something comparable in its scale to 1929-32. And uh, then, as as now, it's a, it's a global crisis, and it's going to precipitate Debt defaults um, unless there 's a kind of agreed debt cancelization cancellation, and I think what we 're about to see is not only uh, the fire hose of uh, of dollars being turned on uh, for emerging markets uh, but but also a great deal of of debt forgiveness is going to be uh, agreed to preempt defaults uh, i 'm trying to do the math on the back of an imaginary envelope, but when i when I add together. Uh, what the Federal Reserve has already done, uh, not only to finance the US government, but also through swap lines to keep developed uh, economies going. And now there's uh, going to be a whole bunch of SDRs, which are in effect, uh, partly dollars uh, uh, poured into emerging markets. Uh, Pretty soon you're talking big money, right, John? And I I think one of the big questions for economists, uh, and it's one I've been Grappling with as an economic historian is what happens if you have simultaneously a huge supply shock with really large parts of the economy taken offline by state fiat or simply by social distancing and public panic. And at the same time, you have a massive fiscal uh, and monetary expansion, not only nationally, uh, but globally. uh, It it seems to me that there has to be some kind of uh, end game here that involves either inflation. Uh, in 2021 after the pandemic has been contained, or some radical realignment of asset prices with economic reality. Because even as we're talking about all this, the stock market's up another couple percentage points, which uh, is giving me huge cognitive dissonance as I I try to think about it.
3: Well, I am right now, as we speak, trying to wrap my head around the financial aspects of what's going on. So this is a little tentative. Um, As I understand it, I think we have a plan in place for a three month V-shaped sharp recession. And that plan is that the Federal Reserve will print money to pretty much pay everybody's bill. Uh, And it'll be about four to $6 trillion. And and I mean, print money. Um, I looked up the numbers. The Treasury borrowed a trillion dollars in the last month, and the Fed bought a. Bought, the Fed, sorry, it was about seven hundred billion. The Fed bought one point three trillion dollars of debt. So the Fed printed more money, buying up all the debt the government issued. The Bank of England is now directly financing its Treasury's deficits. We, we are not even. It, it, we are not even borrowing money to do this. We are printing money to do this. Uh, and all of the Fed's various uh, programs are printing up new money. That isn't necessarily inflation, it's it's interest paying money, which I don't want to get uh, too deep into, but that's a plan. The plan of we will lend money to uh, pay every business's bill, uh, and keep every asset price, bond prices from falling so investors don't lose any money. Uh, that plan can go on for a couple of months, but then, uh, then I think you, you cannot, even the Fed, cannot uh, print up a trillion dollars a month if this turns into a year-long recession. And if the the bills, if the bankruptcies the Fed is asked to print money to cover extend to state and local governments, emerging market governments, uh, Italy, and, and so forth. Uh, so I think we have in plan that place, which is okay for a couple months, but is not suitable for a six month to a year um, uh, problem. And yeah, um, what's going on is people who signed up, if you, if you lent money to a uh, junk bond corporation or a, and you were, or a municipality, uh, the point you are writing insurance and you were standing up to earn money in good times, to pay it in bad times. And I think that that's what Neil means by debt cancellations. Uh, that pot of money is going to have to go to where it was intended to go uh,
0: at a certain amount of pain. Once upon a time, there was a comedian named Jimmy Durantine, and his tagline was, everybody wants to get on the act. And I mentioned this because I read an op-ed in the Washington Post by a Senator named Josh Hawley. He's a Republican from Missouri. Very ambitious young man, he may run for president in 2024. And I want to read you a couple of paragraphs of what he wrote, and John and Neil, I especially want your thoughts on this. Here's the Senator's words, quote, because the government has taken the step of closing the economy to protect public health, Congress should in turn protect every single job in this country for the duration of the crisis. Beginning immediately, the federal government should cover 80% of wages for workers at any U.S. business up to the national median wage until this emergency is over. Further, it should offer businesses a bonus for rehiring workers laid off for the past month. Gentlemen, your thoughts.
1: Well, there's nothing like a full blown crisis, whether it's a pandemic or a war. To bring out all kinds of economic unorthodoxy, uh, John was talking a minute ago about what amounts to modern monetary theory, once a fringe enthusiasm of uh, of eccentric economists on the left. And it's now government policy, at least in the UK. I agree with John that it's not quite a description of what's happening in the US because it's not money in the mainstream sense that's being Printed here, it's excess reserves. But I think the other striking thing is that uh, universal basic income used to be regarded as a kind of wacky uh, Silicon Valley enthusiasm. Andrew Yang was regarded as idiosyncratic for promoting it. And now uh, Republican uh, legislators are calling for it uh, because that's essentially what uh, you've just uh, outlined to us. The problem, as John says, is really just one of duration. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's a V-shaped story where we just have this very short, sharp recession and then bounce back, rather as the IMF seems to think, then I suppose we might get away with these temporary expedients. But uh, in my column this weekend, I suggested that the recovery wouldn't be V-shaped, but would be rather more tortoise shaped. If you just imagine a giant tortoise's shell, it goes like that, and then down to its neck, that's the end of the shell, and then you go up, Snet goes up like this, and then its head is a sort of little flat plateau there, some way below the top of the shell. I think the tortoise-shaped recovery means that we're not going to get back to 100%. We're not going to get back to where we were in the V-shaped scenario anytime soon uh, because things like air travel are going to be significantly uh, impacted right into next year and the final advent of a vaccine and a whole bunch of other stuff too. Anything that depends on human gregariousness, on people being in close contact with one another, sports, cinemas, uh, mainstream retail, going to shopping malls, that's all off for the duration. Now, for the duration was a phrase often used during the world wars. Uh, When people signed up for the duration, that meant until the war was over. Well, the pandemic's rather like that. It's not going to just stop on July 4th and allow us to have our V-shaped recovery. Summer's basically been cancelled. Yep, that includes those crowded beaches you were thinking of heading to. If we don't cancel those things, then we're going to be embarking on the herd immunity strategy, that is to say, let the virus rip a strategy that Britain considered and then abandoned once it was explained just how many people would likely die in that scenario. So I think all of these expedients from modern monetary theory to universal basic income might well be advisable in a very short, sharp downturn that would be over by July the 4th. But, but as we've been saying, it's not going to be over by July the 4th any more than World War I was going to be over by Christmas 1914.
3: So though, though everybody thought it was gonna be over, the boys will be home by Christmas. Uh, I've been kind of enjoying the war analogies. And one of the many analogies is, everyone thinks the war is gonna be shut. The Civil War was gonna be over in a couple months too. Exactly. Let me just expand on that a little the, the quote you started with, that's what we're already doing. That is the current plan that is enacted. Its only limitation is the competence of the government at actually getting, shoveling the money out the front door. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've passed an unemployment insurance, that, re, that is uh, replacing 100% of most wages. It's open to just about everybody who loses their job or is just not getting enough hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Small Business Administration loans are exactly there. They're being shoveled out. They are, they are uh, going to be forgiven if you keep your employees uh, employees in place. There's monstrous red tape in getting that out the door, but that is uh, the current plan uh, uh, based on essentially printed money. Uh, The question is how long can that plan last before even the Fed runs out of the ability to print money? Uh, Neil said the tortoise-shaped, I'm even more worried. We are certainly not going back to full steam in the summer or the fall, as long as the virus is still around, threatening a second wave. Mm -hmm. The question is, do we come back afterwards? And that depends on how much of the economy has been permanently destroyed. I think I don't want to sound critical of what the Fed is doing, because I think there's a genuine worry. If um, all the small businesses in the U.S. fail, have their property seized, are in bankruptcy court, foreclosed, if jobs are permanently lost and that those, those networks uh, of employer-to-employee severed, then you have an enormous thing on your hands. So, so, When this goes on to the point that it turns into a financial panic, is when it turns into a long, slow recovery. I think that's what the Fed's worried about. Uh, I think historically, um, you know, 1929 was the stock market crash. It wasn't until 1933 that the banks failed, and that's when the Great Depression really got going. Uh, so I think that the fear of a financial collapse is, is genuine. Uh, the astonishing thing the Fed is doing to stop it are you can at least get the motivations, and we can talk about whether it's the right thing to do or not some other time. Uh, but the, the, uh, the first part of the tortoise recovery is there. The question is, will we even get the second part of the tortoise recovery? I hope so. Uh, I have, there is a, a scenario that the, that the um, disease uh, goes away faster. The, there's reasons to think it may go away and stay away faster than we think. Uh, then we could open up faster. Then these, this plan we have in place for a short, sharp recovery, we go, whoof. that'll work. the the essentially the the UBI keep every business afloat plan will have worked and we can get going again. If it doesn't, as military planners will tell you, uh, well, we've shot a lot of ammunition off and then they're coming over the hill again.
1: I think one really important point that that John just alluded to is that while we might get some respite with warmer weather, uh, there's mounting evidence that that that's likely. Uh, that that, that's not going to make uh, COVID-19 go away. Actually, it'll make a comeback once you get to colder weather at the end of the year. And that would be familiar to historians because most of the great pandemics in history have come in waves, not in a single curve. I'm probably repeating myself. I'm sure I said this on a previous Goodfellas uh, episode, but it's really crucial because if we manage to contain things with a big proportion of the population not having been exposed to the virus, and then we relax and say, well, uh, it's all over. It was all over by July 4th, uh, and the pessimists like Ferguson were wrong. Uh, It's going to look pretty bad when it makes a comeback after Thanksgiving.
3: Mm -hmm. We do have a chance there to do what we should have done in January. (laughs) If, If the sort of public health bureaucracy and testing is in place, then, when uh, November seventh, someone gets off uh, a plane from Latin America who has, you know, has turned into a reservoir. If we're ready to detect it, trace it, test it, contact it, we can keep this thing from starting up again. Uh, if we've given up and said, "Yeah, the party's on," then it starts all over
0: again. HR, you're familiar with campaigns and execution and strategy. If you were in charge of bringing the economy back to life and starting things up, where would you
2: start? Well, the first thing is generals really shouldn't talk about economics. That's the first rule, as I mentioned in, in our first episode. But uh, but I do I do I do want to provide a little bit more of, a, of an optimistic view here. I mean, I'm, I'm getting depressed here myself listening to Deal and John. I mean, we we do, and I, and I know that my colleagues would agree. We do have a degree of agency over this, So we're executing really a, a broad range of actions across you know local government, state government, uh, the private sector. I think what what I've what I'm seeing is really an unprecedented degree of private and, and public sector cooperation on, on this issue. I have mm-hmm. seen you know, the, some of the most talented people it, it, across our economy volunteer to do what they can. Some of these groups are, are sort of self-synchronizing and coming together. One with which I'm, I'm working uh, aims to get Really, what we're short of in terms of of human expertise ahead of this wave, and and help apply it to the problem, and and these are people in the you know in the, in the sectors of uh, of the medical field, the biomedical field, uh, epidemiology, those who who have run you know complex uh, uh, medical organizations in in crisis situations, uh, you know t- talent and and human resources uh, experts uh, and recruiters, uh, data scientists, and so. There are these groups coming together to, to work on this problem and to do the, the, to help execute the broad range of actions that we're undertaking, which is obviously you know improvement of, of testing, protecting vulnerable populations. We have the we have to really double down, and we are, and we're, we're seeing this happen in the in medical innovation. Uh, to develop therapies, but also to develop a vaccine which was really going to be essential to, to killing this thing off and, and getting you know, away from the tortoise recovery into a, a, a better recovery faster recovery than a, than a, than a tortoise uh, recovery. Uh, the, the antibody testing, the contact tracing, I mean we're talking we're talking about all these actions uh, that, that are that are being undertaken now. So we do have a degree of agency uh, over this and, and I see us I see us, Uh, the American people, uh, the American government, the public and private sectors executing that imperfectly. And I think what we have been reminded of, which is what we know in any military operation, you know, it doesn't matter what you write in your operations order. It doesn't matter. It's really what your soldiers and units do that matters. It's it's execution, it's implementation. And you have to have the, the proper leadership, the purpose, the motivation, the direction to do it. And I think another another lesson we're learning is we are, I think, justifiably you're, you're criticizing responses that should have been faster. But I think what we see is in, in this digital and information age, you know, uh, the, the laws of physics still apply, right? which means that you can't get Protective gear, you know, over your internet. It's something that has to be made and shipped and arrived at the at the at the at the right location. And so, I think we are frustrated, uh, to to uh, and rightfully so. And, and Niels pointed this out in terms of a, a lack of of urgency in the preparation for this thing, and and uh, and and therefore uh, we're, we're behind in certain areas. But I think we ought to really be careful about not having you know too unrealistic expectations. Uh, unrealistic expectations about how quickly we can get things done whether it's economically physically from a biomedical uh perspective uh, i think we're going to see a whole range of adaptations to this we're going to see some 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 growth in 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 parts of our economy i mean biomedical screening i think hey you know invest in that right i mean so but so i, I think that that we have to make sure that as we are self critical we don't fall into the to the belief that We are the passive recipients uh, of of the consequences. Uh, People who study combat trauma, uh, are what they've identified as the main cause for combat trauma and the disorders associated with it are feelings of helplessness. Mm -hmm. And I think what's great about our free and open society is we can criticize our government. We can demand more. You can't do that in China, right? And so uh, I, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh where whereas we, we may we and, and you know I defer to my colleagues on this to have lower expectations in connection with the speed and extent of the economic recovery. Right. I think we should continue to set high goals and expectations for how we respond emotionally, psychologically, uh in terms of how how we identify as as Americans and what brings us together ideologically.
3: I, I want to chime in and just uh agree with HR. So Neil and I one thing is clear, there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen, both uh, the disease and the economics. Uh, everyone looking at this says, you know, it could be terrible, it, it could go over quickly. And Neil and I were kind of um, in, in the worry mode about the, the tale of this, where it's back in the winter and, and the economy goes through a financial meltdown, which is possible. But I'm also seeing uh, signs of, th- th- it, it, there is a happy end. One of the things HR pointed out is the tremendous innovation we're seeing uh, in businesses, not waiting for government to tell them what to do. Uh, I, I went down to the hardware store this morning uh, because we had an infestation of uh, termites and I had to buy some stuff for that. And uh, you know, overnight they had put up plexiglass between us and the cashiers and they were all wearing masks. You know, No government told them to do that. They just figured that out. One, A feature of this virus is the small number of super spreaders who count for most of its reproduction rate not so much people and activities well we've all figured that out <laughs> and so even just basic common sense uh i think will will uh, on the private end will cut down the super spreading activity the the uh, you know the rise of the apps the technology the medical stuff to help us is certainly there so there is a story where uh it kind of goes away. It seems to go away on its own. It's not on its own. It's through the thousand points of light of innovation and people just taking common sense into their own hands to uh,
1: to, to do it. And then, and then then we'll be okay. I saw a really interesting paper on this subject, uh, which essentially seemed to be saying that social distancing uh, has been much more effective in in slowing the spread of the virus than lockdowns. I mean, lockdowns are really blunt instrument, uh imposed by the state. And I'm afraid that the, 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 the state-imposed lockdown leads to all kinds of lunacies. I heard a, a, a story yesterday of a chap who was paddleboarding uh, uh, in the sea off the Californian uh, coast, and uh, he was actually stopped uh, uh, by the authorities. Now, That's just the kind of nonsense that we we should be avoiding here. It's rational behavior of the sort John just described in a hardware store that really works. Once people understand this disease, and I think people are getting it, uh, they can make the right decisions about social distancing. Uh, After all, it clearly is much more risky for somebody over 65. I've just seen the new data published in the UK showing what an enormous increase uh, in excess mortality above what we'd expect there was in the week to April the 3rd, and I expect it to be even larger uh, in the next week when the data come out. When you look at that excess, two things are really striking. Firstly, about half the excess mortality can be attributed to COVID-19, which tells us that people are dying in larger numbers than usual for other reasons, and that's almost certainly because a, of healthcare systems being overloaded so that people aren't getting treated for cancer or their their heart conditions, and B, because there are going to be deaths that arise from economic lockdowns. Remember all that literature by Angus Dayton on deaths uh, of despair? I can promise you there'll be many deaths of despair if, if this is a summer of permanent lockdown. Uh, and the second thing that's really striking is that of the COVID-19 deaths in the UK, the overwhelming proportion, more than 80%, are of people aged 65 and older. And that's true in Italy. That's true really anywhere where we have uh, decent data on on, uh, death by age cohort. So people, I think, as they understand the nature of the disease, are going to be able to act rationally without the state coming along and saying, oh, you must get off that paddleboard The man was out at sea. There was nowhere anywhere near him, never mind a distance of six feet. He was 600 feet away from the next human being. What on earth are the forces of law and order doing, hassling somebody who's just out getting some healthy, uh, uh, fresh air on on the ocean wave? I find this kind of madness, and I hear many similar tales, deeply depressing just as I'm encouraged to hear that actually there's spontaneous action being taken by social networks without government orders that are actually proving more effective in containing the spread of the virus.
0: Let's talk briefly about what you three see as the upcoming flashpoint or pressure point, if you will. Uh, Neil's already alluded to this, which is government. And I'm, you know, we saw this on Easter weekend, various accounts from around the country of people who wanted to worship And government, in some cases, not wanting people to go into churches, the governor of Kentucky wanted to write down people's license plates and recorded they were going to church. Um, So is freedom of worship going to be a flashpoint? What about freedom of assembly, going out on the beach, having a party outdoors? What about on a different front? What if there is a vaccine that is discovered for this? And we go back to a problem this country has already had, requiring people to vaccinate their children
1: if if people start uh, reverting to, to beach party mode, uh, or attending uh, any event that involves a large crowd, I'm afraid it really will be incumbent on the, the state and, and municipal authorities to stop them, because that's just the surest way of expediting the spread of a disease for which we don't have a vaccine or a therapy. And I'm afraid it's going to have to be Done, and I'm afraid there will be no exemptions uh, for religious services. If the Pope can deliver uh, his Easter message to an entirely deserted uh, St. Peter's Square, then I'm afraid uh, your Bible Belt preacher is going to have to settle uh, for iPads on on the pews. Uh, uh, um, and as for vaccination, well. I think if there's one thing that illustrates the sheer pathology of the internet as a giant online network, it's the way it's been used to spread. Uh, nutty conspiracy theories and, and anti vaccination propaganda. This is pernicious. Uh, our colleague at Stanford, René de Resta, has been one of those people doing great work exposing these extraordinarily damaging and dangerous groups. I'm afraid the COVID 19 uh, pandemic is giving the conspiracy theorists an absolute field day. And if anything's going to make dealing with this problem difficult, it's just that kind of online viral lunacy.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. I, I would say so. The one good thought I think I had last week was we need social distance, but social distance does not have to mean economic distance. And I think our leaders have confused the two by saying business must shut down. What must remain shut down is large groups of people who don't with with newcomer with frequent newcomers sitting in rooms together, breathing the air together. Sorry, that's done. The birthday party is is a joy of life. Uh, but it's not a lot of GP. and And when we're talking about you know trillions of dollars and people's livelihoods gone, the birthday party has to be every much bit as much we don't do that anymore in the same way as as the crowded bar uh, or the airplane. Um, so Neil's got a point. we have to keep that social distance because those are the things, whether at work or at home, where an airborne virus, uh, which airborne virus, where many people are asymptomatic, spreads. our challenge. The, the, the lovely fact is that most of our economy can work with reasonable social distance. Um, it's not going to happen by regulations from on top. It's going to happen by just common sense. Right. So what we need is sort of social distance rules, which I, I think you know, Neil's right. Those are going to have to be Promulgated and and perhaps enforced you know The argument for the guy on the paddleboard and and my guy running in Italy is that it sets a bad example Um, Well, what really sets a bad example is, you know, people out there congregating having a party together Uh, So social distance not economic distance is where we're gonna have to stay for a while Right. Um, as far as when do people get sick of it? Let's talk about what they're sick of right now. And if you watch the news um, what people are really – people are frustrated with incompetent bureaucracy right now. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the government said, we get unemployment insurance, and they, they, then they go to the unemployment. They, you, you still go to an unemployment office, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Stand in a line for hours and hours. You don't have Form 83-27B and the F E I N of your last seven employers. And, or you try to call them. People say they call hundreds and hundreds of times. The Small Business Administration wants to give people loans. You know, people are told by the bureaucracy, here's our solution, and they're just running into snafu. Right now, that's getting people mad. And I think um, that kind of thing, the, the, the silliness of, of people being hassled for for things that are clearly obeying social distancing but not obeying the letter of the rule, that is gonna get people, that we know that's gonna get people mad. We'll see about future civil liberties. We'll see if they even try to uh, put in things, but, but uh, R., when R., you, do 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 you do something, do it how, competently.
0: How do you lead in this society though? and How do you push back against the tinfoil hat crowd that is convinced that COVID is a product of 5G technology, for example? I, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, what matters is the probabilities.
3: If uh, 95% of us do sensible stuff, and 5% of people on cases. well, you know, we still cut the R-naught rate, the reproduction rate down by a factor of 20. Good enough.
2: HR? And, and I think one of, the ways, one of the ways we do is we focus on, on ourselves. And, and, and I, I don't think social distancing has to lead to psychological or social isolation from one another. And I think, you know, I think the trend had been in our society that we were more connected to each other than ever electronically but more distant from each other than ever emotionally. And so maybe we can use this opportunity to come together, right? To, to sort of break this cycle of identity politics, interacting with bigotry and driving us apart and polarizing our polity. Maybe we can use this opportunity to come back together. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying our conversations every week. I've been able to reconnect with my old rugby teammates, with my old our army friends, and and uh, and our families staying, our extended family staying connected through video conferencing and, and other means. I think we were on this trajectory where you know victim, victimhood had become the near, the new sort of form of heroism right in our in our society, and now we see real heroes. And we also see that these are heroes on the front lines of this, that it doesn't matter what their skin color is, what, you know, when they immigrated to the United States, we're seeing that we're seeing the great promise of our country and the cohesiveness of our society. And I think we have to build on that. We have to strengthen our common identity as Americans. And while we can continue to address the shortcomings and, and pitfalls in our competence, our strategic competence, our, our government competence. I really do think not in a Pollyannish way, but we have to celebrate the heroes in our society and and heroines in our society and use that to help bring us back together. And and I think we have an opportunity to do so. And and uh, and so my 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 message would be this the the inflection point to watch is maybe a a positive one uh, as well in terms of uh, of really consolidating our understanding of who we are and restoring our confidence in our democratic Principles and institutions and and processes. Well, but and, let's you know, own
3: Conversation just you know, we were complaining about failures of the government and so forth But I hope you, you saw the undertone it can be fixed and I think I see that uh, throughout lots of people saying boy The government screwed up and it's in a bit but you know, it's always been that way. It can be fixed uh, and and I think I you know you sense a bipartisan or nonpartisan desire to get the basic machinery of government fixed and that it and that that can happen
0: right all right let's end on a upbeat note let's not just give people hope let's give them something to watch or read to think about uh to escape this barrage of covid uh i'll start off um i stumbled upon a series on hbo and unfortunately ends next monday it's called the plot against america it's a philip roth uh, novel from night uh, from uh 2004 and it chronicles a different america in which fdr loses a 1940 election charles lindbergh is elected president and America thus becomes isolationist and anti-Semitism sweeps across the country. And it chronicles how a family in New Jersey reacts to this. It's a, it's a fascinating look at, the, at what could have happened. It also reminds you in America, we're not just, you know, we're just at times we're very lucky. So that's been my escape a the plot against America. What about you, John Cochran? I don't escape, I, I work 24 seven and then I go running. <laughs> okay, exercise, go run, HR?
2: Well, you know, I, I, I finished a book that is printed and sitting in boxes waiting to be shipped when, when the supply chain is back <laughs> intact. So I've taken a bit of a breather and and uh, and I'm reading uh, our friend Andrew Roberts, uh, Andrew Roberts' biography of, of Churchill, which will it will take me some time and occupy me for a while. Uh, but then but then also I'm reading Rick Atkinson's The British are, are Coming. You know, Rick is a great historian. He wrote a great trilogy on World War II. And this is the first of what will be a trilogy on the American Revolution. And it's it's a great reminder of who we are uh, from a historical perspective.
0: All right. And Neil Ferguson, what would you recommend besides one of many great Neil Ferguson books?
1: Well... Not, not necessarily The Plot Against America, which you're reading, Bill. You know that Sinclair Lewis wrote that book long, long ago in the 1930s. It can't happen here. But I'm not sure that uh, people should be reading stories of uh, of, of fascist uh, America with dictatorial presidents. It might give them even more nightmares than they're already having. I've, I've been reading with uh, my eight-year-old son, Thomas, the wonderful short stories Richmore Crompton wrote in the 1920s and 30s about a little boy named William just William, they're supremely comical. Uh, they've stood the test of time. It's a mystery to me why Americans don't know and love William Brown, a compulsively badly behaved, a deeply individualistic lover of freedom who I think should become one of the, one of the icons of this time. Please, everybody, if you've never read Richmore Crompton's Just William, this is the time to start. You will not regret it. They're very funny.
0: Thank you, Neil. Thank you, uh, John. Thank you, HR, for a wonderful conversation. And that's it for this installment of Goodfellows. Neil, John, and HR will return next week for a new conversation. On behalf of the Goodfellows, John Cochran, Neil Ferguson, and HR McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at Hoover to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week.